Today on Ag News Daily. That how can we take this opportunity and turn it into real world opportunities for everybody here in the Midwest and in these rural communities. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Another Ag News Daily podcast here on this Wednesday afternoon. Delaney Howell joined by Mike Pierce and Mike Sorry, I had to miss out yesterday, but I was working on a story for the hog facilities and the whole ramaral that was going on with the government. And we didn't have a lot of clarity yesterday, but it sounds like we're starting to get a little bit more today. We're starting to. So what the Delaney's talking about is what we talked about yesterday on the podcast. It has really been the big news in the livestock sector for the past 24 hours. And that was President Trump issuing an executive order utilizing the Defense Production Act to order meat plants to what it sounded like yesterday was stay in production, basically stay open. Uh, the initial discover discussions yesterday were centered on the fact that uh, the federal government was going to send in more testing supplies and more personal protective equipment to allow these plants to stay open. Well, now the executive order, the text of the order has been made public, and there is, as you'd expect, anytime you get this kind of, uh, of government action, a lot of back and forth on exactly what the text means. Um, there continues to be some discussion that this order does uh, somehow require meatpacking plants to remain open or, in fact, to open back up. However, there have been a lot of legal scholars reading the text of it and saying, you know what, this thing, like other uses of the DPA, the Defense Production Act, doesn't actually require these plants to open up or to stay open. Really, what it does is it requires these meatpacking plants to prioritize any federal orders for meat. The, anything coming from the U.S. government has to get top priority because what they are producing is of national security. That's one half of the executive order. That half doesn't seem to be doing a whole lot for, for meat production, broadly speaking. We're not going to see the Smithfield plant reopen tomorrow in Sioux Falls because of this order. However, there is a second part of the executive order that could have more teeth, and that is the, uh, the, the part of the order that authorizes Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue to do what is necessary to keep these critical defense infrastructure plants open. It's in that segment that a lot of the lawyers believe that uh, Secretary of Ag Sonny Perdue now has much more broad powers to come in and address some of the sickness, address the, uh, the worker absenteeism, and use some of the federal government's resources to get these plants open. At the end of the day today, or at least where we're sitting here as we record at uh, just about 1.30 on uh, Wednesday, we don't yet know <laughs> what all of this means on a per-facility basis. Does this mean that uh, Secretary Purdue is going to swoop in to Smithfield and hand out masks and hand out testing supplies and open up that plant tomorrow? It sounds like he might now have that authority, but the question is, can they find healthy labor? Can they you know, reopen this thing without the coronavirus? It really doesn't appear to be changing a whole lot of things right away. However, we did talk yesterday. The meat industry has been really kind of holding the administration's hand in getting this thing passed. One of the big things as we look at what this order has done is it has reduced their liability in opening. So you know, we talked about that lawsuit yesterday in Milan, Missouri, about the plant worker suing uh, Smithfield because they were pro allegedly providing unsanitary working conditions. This order will alleviate that, so it should take a 
big risk off of producers or, or plant operators' minds. Also, this order supersedes any local government's request that plants close. So that's really where things stand as of right now. That's my understanding of the order. If we do have any meat industry specialists who are tuned in or legal specialists who have read something different out of this order, we would love to hear from you. Check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Find us at Ag News Daily on both places and, and let us know. Uh, this is just a, a couple of legal opinions that I've been reading this morning. It's going to be interesting to see how this thing actually manifests, Delaney, in mm -hmm. practice. Yeah, you'll have to send me those legal opinions. I'd be interested in reading them myself. But yes, from what I've been reading, I would agree with your synopsis of the way things are going. And the emphasis, I think, too, is that it's now at the federal government's discretion, not at a local level or a state level. So if mayors or governors or whoever want to shut those facilities down, I don't necessarily think it's within their purview anymore. Exactly. That seems to have been taken out of the equation by this order. So, you know, we did see a lot of, uh, of local and state officials pushing to close the Tyson plant in Waterloo, Iowa. You know, now it sounds like no matter how hard they push, those plants do not have to answer to those local officials. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that is correct. Mike, but switching tracks here, I think this comes as no surprise to anybody, but uh, we are definitely seeing China lag behind in those phase one pledges that they have, that they pledged to purchase as part of that agreement. China says that it's bought about $5 billion worth of U.S. ag commodities in the first quarter, but they've promised to be at $36.5 billion by the end of this year. So University of Illinois their farm doc webinar said that they think we're going to be lucky if we hit the 2017 level, which was about $24 billion in imports, let alone the additional $12.5 billion that will be needed to fulfill that 2020 phase one of the agreement. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. So it is still going to be a tough slog, it sounds like, to get China to meet right. their needs unless they really step in, checkbook in hand, and uh, start writing some big checks. Yeah, and you know, the thing that has been interesting to me to watch is that the U.S. corn market is priced pretty dang cheap. I mean, we're hovering right around that $3 mark, and yet when you look at Chinese corn prices, local corn prices, they're at quite a bit of a premium Yet we don't see China really coming to the buying table to buy U.S. corn, even with it being at such a discount. No, and uh, we're not seeing them buy U.S. soybeans. Of course, they continue to purchase from Brazil as the cheapness of Brazilian real makes that a much more affordable option. So, I mean, China, hey, if you want to play ball, you got to step up to the plate and start writing some checks. Delaney, I've got some other international news that a lot of our meat producing friends are not going to be thrilled to hear. Minerva SA, the second largest meat packer down in Brazil, had an announcement earlier today. And Minerva has been in the news because when we started this trade war with China and we saw Chinese demand for American agricultural products, particularly meat, fall off the deep end. Remember, the administration really wanted us to you know, stop selling stuff to China in order to improve the trade deficit. So we did. They never bought or they didn't buy a lot of meat from us. Instead, they took all of their dollars and they went down to Brazil and they bought tons and tons and tons of Brazilian beef. Well, the country, the company that is best positioned to export beef from Brazil is Minerva. They ate our lunch last year selling meat into China, and they announced earlier today that they are really excited about the shutdown of meatpacking plants in the U.S. because now this opens the door for additional meat 
exports into the United States. So not only could we see the situation where American livestock production is backing up on farms, granted, depending on what happens with this uh, President Trump order to keep plants open, we could start seeing grocery store shelves full of South American beef. Uh, this is in the this is in the realm of possibility. Uh, they do say they they hope to further boost foreign sales, serving uh, supplies in large production nations like the United States. This is coming from their chief financial officer. Um, they say that really the Brazilian meat based Brazilian based meat exporters are poised to capture some of this market, and they are ready with supplies on hand. So keep an eye out there, ladies and gentlemen, this conversation we have been having over labeling beef as American through mandatory country of origin labeling, which has certainly been in the news again, um, could become much more pitched as the year drags on if Minerva or any other uh, you know, South American meat producer does start exporting large quantities of meat into the United States. I liked your phrase there, that they're eating our lunch. Mm-hmm. Well, good, they are frustrating yeah. for a lot right. of American producers because we've got the product. We've got the largest hog herd we've got in, shoot, at least 30 years. We've got one of the largest beef herds in modern history. The problem we're running into is this bottleneck at the Packers. And, of course, one of the Packers that are shutting down, and I think we're going to see a lot of uh, conspiracy theorists mm-hmm. bring this up, JBSSA, JBS, Brazilian Meat Packing Company. Of course, they've shut down some plants. How is it going to look if we start importing beef mm. from JBS's mother country to fill our grocery store shelves while protein backs up in this country? It is uh, it's going to create quite a political firestorm, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, that'll be interesting to watch play out. But one of the other things that we are continuing to watch is the U.S. economy. We saw it shrink last quarter at an annual rate of about 4.8% as coronavirus plagued our country and began triggering somewhat of a recession. The Commerce Department says that the gross domestic product posted a quarterly drop for the first time in six years, and it was the sharpest fall that we've seen in one quarter since 2008. So it definitely is pointing to a signal that perhaps we are heading into a long-term economic recession and definitely something that the administration is continuing to watch. The Congressional Budget Office has been watching it. And this is a shocking statistic, but the Congressional Budget Office is estimating that GDP for this quarter could plunge at an annual rate of 40%. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh, Delaney, that is a huge number. That's a big number. And it's a big number. The biggest number we've had since about 1947. Oof. Yeah, that would be really bad news. However, an interesting thing, those numbers came out this morning from the U.S. Commerce Department. Ordinarily, when we get news of a recession or a 40% decline, would certainly constitute a depression. And remember, folks, to have a recession, economically speaking, you know, using the, the terms of the trade, you have to have two successive quarters with GDP shrinkage. So we've got one right now. And as Delaney mentioned, it certainly looks like we're shaping up for number two, which would, for the third quarter of 2020, if those come to pass, put us in at least a recession or a depression. Usually, when these type of news events come into the world, we see the stock market sell off and we see oil sell off because those are the two most uh, widely used benchmarks for economic activity. But we actually saw 
the stock market up today because this is not connected to agriculture necessarily, but it definitely has ramifications for the entire economy. Gilead, a uh, pharmaceutical company, announced that their drug rem remisivir, something like that, was successful in completing their primary endpoint in a drug trial treating coronavirus. So the stock market was hopeful that, hey, maybe we've got something that can lick this thing. A lot more information on that will be coming out later today, so we'll have more information on that tomorrow. The other thing that happened today, counterintuitively, was that crude oil prices surged earlier today. We've been talking about crude oil. It has been incredibly volatile. We spoke uh, at length about it with Darren Newsom on our Market Monday episode. If you missed it, go back and check that out. But uh, crude stockpiles actually grew less than expected, and gasoline was actually able to draw down some of the stockpiles, which means... Folks are out there, they're driving, we're not producing nearly as much, so the, the slowdown in production has happened, and those two factors combined led us to a nice little bounce in the crude oil markets. And some of that optimism spilled over into the world of agriculture, Delaney. I'm all out of news, should we jump into the markets, or do you have any other stories for us? Let's do it. All right, folks. Well, as I mentioned, we did see a little bit of spillover. Of course, the biggest beneficiary of a drop in crude oil supplies is the corn market. And corn was higher on the day. Looking at the corn market, July corn was up two and a half cents at 314 and a half, with the December up three and a half cents to close at 333 and a half. Soybeans also rallied. The July was up five and a half cents at 837 and a half. November new crop up five and a quarter, closed at 844 and a quarter. We continuing to see some weakness. Additional rainfall across the Black Sea region of the former Soviet Union brought a little more faith that they could indeed have some export ready stocks come harvest time. So we saw the July drop nine and a half cents at five sixteen and a half, while December Chicago was down seven and a quarter to close at five thirty and a half. Looking over at livestock, we've got mixed trade today in live cattle. The June contract was down forty two and a half cents at eighty four twenty seven fifty. The August, however, was up twenty five cents to close at ninety seventy seven half. Feeder cattle positive on the day. The May was up a nickel at one eighteen fifty five, while August was up fifty two and a half to close at one twenty eight forty five. And weakness in lean hogs. The June was down 67.5 cents at 55.52.50. The July down $1.77.5 to close at 58.47.5. Checking on dairy, big moves today, especially, well, front month and deferred month. We saw the May class three milk contract up 31 cents on the day at 11.59, with the June up 51 cents to close at 12.63. Without further ado, let's talk a commodity that isn't reported in the futures markets, and that's fish. We're going to check with our good friend Joe Sweeney from Eagle's Cat. Well, today we are joined by maybe a familiar voice to some of you, maybe not to some of our newer listeners, but Joe Sweeney is the CEO and founder of Eagle's Catch, located in the state of Iowa doing aquaculture of all things. Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's so exciting to be uh, be a part of your guys' podcast again, uh, Ag News Daily, and, and so excited to share a little bit about aquaculture and uh, the good things that are happening right here in central Iowa. Yeah, so for those of our listeners who have not heard of you or heard of your operation, we've had you on the podcast before, but it's been quite some time. Bring us up to speed on Eagle's Catch and how you guys have created a really a niche market for yourselves. Yeah, so uh, here in Ellsworth, we have built a fish farm that is all indoors using what's called a recirculating aquaculture system. 
And this uh, system essentially is we got great big tanks, fish tanks, where we take a little bit of water out every day or at every minute, and we're filtering that water and returning it back to the tank. In fact, every gallon in our fish tanks get filtered every one and a half to two hours. So that way we can keep a really clean environment for the fish. And then that way we can, having it indoors, we don't, aren't susceptible to weather swings or uh, other challenges that outdoor producers have. And so um, it's uh, been pretty exciting to be a part of this. We founded Eagles Catch in 2016 and now we had our first sales in 2019 and uh, now here 2020 we're expecting to ramp up we're going to be producing about three million pounds of tilapia uh, in 2020 and uh, we're going to hit uh, about uh, five million pounds of tilapia a year in 2021 and so that's actually going to put us as the largest fish farm in the country uh, that that is indoors and uh, so we're really excited about that and trying to create a, a, a seafood independent United States. Not today, but we hope to be in the future. And that is a big thing. Joe, when we talk about tilapia, the tilapia market in particular, when you mention a seafood independent United States, we are a long way from that when it comes to tilapia. Give us the, the industry rundown. Most tilapia in this country comes from where? Fish farms. So the, when you look at the total seafood market, the United States only produces, and this is both wild caught, this is uh, aquaculture and everything included. The United States only produces only 9% of what we consume here. And so there's a long ways to go to be a seafood independent United States. One of the largest trade deficits in the United States to be exact. Tilapia is one of the few fish that have a long history of being farmed. In fact, they've been farmed over a millennia, uh, originally dating back to the Nile in Egypt. And so um, a lot of the tilapia uh, and catfish producers right now in the United States are the big aquaculture products, primarily reside in Southeast America. And now it's starting to expand and it's now starting to get a lot of attention. There's a lot of folks that are trying to get into salmon farming and shrimp farming, which are excellent products as well. In our opinion, tilapia is kind of one of the only true livestock animals that is uh, seafood that uh, has a really great market it's acceptance. It's an affordable product that is mild in flavor. So folks that don't like fish typically, like tilapia because it doesn't have much of its own flavor. It's kind of like a chicken breast that really lends itself to however you want to cook it. And our market is primarily, uh, we go after premium niche markets while we kind we are working on the structural competencies that uh, and the supporting industries here in the Midwest to someday be globally competitive with uh, where, where all this other fish is coming from. And that's really, really impressive, Joe. But uh, looking at your background, you came from a pretty traditional farm and then now you're farming fish, what I, which I would say is pretty untraditional. We're at this moment right now when I think a lot of producers are considering diversifying and, and maybe looking into aquaculture as a means of doing that. Tell our listeners a little bit more about why you decided to go 
the aquaculture route as opposed to some other type of diversification for your family's farm? Yeah, you know, uh, as uh, growing up here in central Iowa, I've uh, been very fortunate to see um, and have a lot of really great role models in farming, including my parents, including a lot of my neighbors uh, near where I grew up in Buckeye, Iowa. And I've seen them work really hard their entire life, and, and they all produce, you know, a similar product, and uh, they've had very fruitful lives. And it, sometimes it takes people to think outside of the box uh, to help provide new opportunities uh, for these people that I grew up around in these rural communities and in the role models that I had. And so when I heard a couple things about the seafood market that really got me interested, that there's a ton of opportunity, that how can we take this opportunity and turn it into real world opportunities for everybody here in the Midwest and in these rural communities. That's why I got involved in aquaculture and I hope to provide opportunities for everybody uh, right here in the Midwest. Well, and so that's the thing, Joe, when we think about the Midwest, we think about uh, hot summers, we think about very, very cold winters with lots of snow. We've got a lot of temperature variability they don't have in the Southeast, which is why they've been raising fish down there. How does it make sense to raise fish indoors in an area with this much volatility of weather, especially when you're raising a, a warm water species like tilapia? Well, that's a great question, Mike. And uh, one of the things is we actually keep our water temperature between 80 and 85 degrees. That's really what's called the standard environmental temperature, the, the temperature that the animals are the most comfortable and the most productive. And so with that, we actually have a greenhouse here in Ellsworth. Um, so it's pretty untypical of what you see for agriculture in the state. And we're growing, so this building itself uh, is moisture resistant. It heats itself nine months out of the year. And yeah, about two months, out of, two to three months out of the year, we're dumping heat into it. As you look at the year long average, it's more efficient than a different type of building structure. And you're right, there's a lot of people that produce fish down in the Southeast because their environment, uh, their natural environment, tends to lend itself to that standard environmental temperature for the fish a little better than we have here. However, when you look at the other aspects of what makes a farm successful, Iowa is extremely competitive. Number one, the people here that have a great background and understand what it takes to make a product such as corn, soybeans, pork, uh, and, and the number of things that we are listed as number one in and take that and be globally competitive. So there's a people here that have a great understanding of how to make that happen. Number two, here in Iowa, we're in the center of the country and our logistic advantages is that uh, we are in a marketplace where everything's coming from the coasts inward and we're starting in the middle and we're going out. And so there's a lot of logistic advantages because here in the Midwest, we're not very used to good, clean and fresh seafood. And so that's uh, something that a lot of our you know, customers love is that we're in the Midwest. On top of all of that, all of the feed ingredients are right here. So you, you hear a lot of stories about how dairies and other livestock production continues to migrate towards the Midwest to take advantage of shipping uh, and logistic uh, synergies 
by having being really close to the feedstuffs. And so all of those things combined with our high water table of really quality water makes I and a supportive regulatory bodies and all the people here makes a really great environment to grow right here in Iowa. Yeah, I know. I certainly uh, enjoy eating seafood, especially when we're going out to the coasts because I know it's fresh, but it's nice to know that there's going to be a market for it and there is starting to be a market for it already here in the Midwest. But Joe, I want to pivot for just a moment because you mentioned that 2019 was your first harvest year for tilapia. So walk our listeners through what the lifespan of a tilapia fish is and more specifically, what happens during harvest? Yeah, so I'll walk through quick just our, our whole process is we actually buy the fish from a, a genetics producer out of New Mexico. We've got a really great relationship with them and they've got a great quality of genetics of their fish. Um, the, the difference is, is, you know, here in Iowa, we're used to a pretty sophisticated approach to genetics and developing those. And this modern breeding practices have only really been developed here in the last 10 years with the fish. So there's a lot of things that uh, from a growth perspective that we can make our fish better just using the modern breeding practices that we already use in other animal agriculture here in Iowa Midwest. So we buy them at about a half of a gram. So it's pretty small and we grow them to about 700 grams, which is about one and a half pounds. And we'll sell them between one and a half pounds to two pounds. Our marketplace likes the, that window. It gives you anywhere between a five to a seven ounce delay. Now that whole process takes us anywhere from seven to nine months. And during that time, we move the fish between, they'll live in four different tanks. And every time we move them, we'll sort them based on size, much like we would do with hogs or chickens or cattle. And um, much like those other animals, they like the big ones tend to fight out the other ones for food. And so we need to make sure we keep our, our sizes pretty consistent. So that way we have uniform growth. And uh, in, over that whole process, uh, when we actually harvest, uh, we'll cool the temperature down so fish, just like every other animal, they produce CO2 from breathing and they produce ammonia, which is a byproduct of the digestive process. And so the difference is between with fish is that they are now excreting those things into the water that is their environment. And so we have to be really careful about how we approach that from a water quality perspective. And so when we actually get ready to harvest, we start a purge process for a couple days that cleans out their whole system and they excrete less ammonia. And then right before we get, we actually harvest them, we'll drop the temperature in the tank from that 80 to 85 degrees down to about 72. And that actually lowers their metabolism rate. And they are, and they get a little bit sluggish, but it allows them to be really healthy, and uh, and especially if we're going to trans, you know, move them uh, while they're alive, which is all of our fish go live, they need to be pretty clean and they need to have a low metabolism rate uh, to really thrive through that transit. And so that's uh, that's kind of the process. incredible, uh, you know, technological feats you've overcome while getting Eagle's Catch open. If we've got listeners out there who really want to make sure they're supporting a Midwestern raised, American raised tilapia product, 
what can they look for in the grocery store? How can they get their hands on some Eagles Catch tilapia? Yeah, so we have it. Yeah, we sell a lot of our uh, fish wholesale, and they go to major metropolitan areas. We're actually just now starting to open up some local restaurants here in central Iowa. In fact, uh, Wallabies and Ames had a feature this last weekend. We also had have uh, Babe's Steakhouse in Ray Radcliffe, Iowa, that's going to have a feature with our tilapia. And we're working to open up a couple more restaurants in the Des Moines area. Uh, that way people can uh, actually come and get our fish. Um, every uh, once a month, we actually have a public fish sale. And so today, we're not able to process fish. So as soon as we ever put a knife to them, that, you know, there's a lot of other regulatory changes. And so once a month, we sell whole fish in, uh, to the public. And so if uh, any of your listeners would be interested, uh, they can go online to our website, to the contact field, and just leave us a note that, hey, next time you have a public sale, uh, please reach out, and we'll make sure they get an invite for uh, when we actually have those sales. Fantastic. Well, Joe Sweeney from Eagles Catch, thanks for taking the time to chat with us and give us an update on everything you've been working on there. Hey, thanks so much, Mike and Delaney. All right. Well, again, a big thank you there to Joe. Great stuff. Interesting stuff. Definitely, you know, something to consider as we're facing another year of probably tight margins is diversification. And Joe's a prime example of that. Absolutely. Sometimes you got to think outside the box when the box we've been living in gets torn to shreds, Delaney. <laughs> that we do. That we do, Mike. Well, listeners, if you want some other ideas on how you can diversify your manager risk or just, you know, see unique things in the world of agriculture, that's what we try to do here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. You can check out our past episodes, go to agnewsdaily.com or find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just search for Ag News Daily and we'll be there. With that, Delaney Howell, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.